Welcome to this episode of The Decade Podcast. My name is Melker Larsen and I'm the host of this show together with Jonathan Angel. This is a podcast where we explore holistic sustainability and answers to the question, how on earth can we live together? And we learn from inspiring stories from champions of sustainability and beyond. And we hope to inspire you to think, act and work for a better planet for all throughout this decade of action. In this episode, we speak with my old teacher, actually, Anna Nordén, and we speak about which economic policies can be implemented to create positive change for sustainability and how does these things work in a real world example where we can't just be idealists. We also talk about more of a bottom-up perspective of using nudging and behavioral economics to create change, which doesn't need to jump through all the hoops that economic policies and regulations needs to. And we speak about her very important work with ownership, an organization and think tank working to promote and illustrate how the differences between male and female ownership look like in Sweden and what they're working to create equal opportunities for both men and women in the workforce and access to capital. It was a very interesting episode and I think it was very rich getting into some topics that I think will be very informative. So I'm really happy to share this one. But before I let you into the episode, I will just share as well a short teaser that we have some big news coming up from the Decade podcast. So stay tuned to look out for what's coming next. And with that said, enjoy this episode with Anna Nordén. Welcome to this episode of the Decade Podcast. Today, I am joined by Anna Nordén, who used to be one of my old uh, economics professors from uh, my university days. And uh, before I introduce this episode, how are you today, Anna? And welcome to the show. I'm fine. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Yes, it's, uh, it's very interesting for me to have you back here because I remember your course, which was called Economics for, for a Sustainable Society, was a very illuminating one, weaving both the environmental perspective together with the economic one. And that's basically what the whole program was about. And I think I came into that course with a bit of a idealist's perspective and it was very thought-provoking and illuminating in terms of, okay, but how does the actual world work? Which instrument are being used, how can we use them, where do they falter? And I went into this conversation with that kind of nerdy philosopher energy and uh, I think I calmed myself <laughs> down a bit and thought what would be interesting for listeners hearing this for the first time and what would be helpful for them to take away from this conversation while we have you on here today. So here we are today and I have a few topics in mind, but first I would like to ask you to share for yourself, what is it that you uh, work with? What are you passionate about in, in your career? It's great. So first of all, I'm an assistant professor in economics, as you mentioned, and I'm focusing on applied microeconomics, uh, especially in connection to sustainability issues. Hmm. 
Uh, it's mostly been focusing on environmental issues uh, with behavioral economics, which we're going to go into today, I think. But also, quite recently, I moved more into to gender economics and the connection between these, uh, which I think is really interesting. And I think also what you mentioned is also what makes me very passionate about the course where we met, <laughs> about economics for a sustainable society, because I have felt many times when I meet people that are engaged in sustainability issues that they see economics as the devil <laughs> and uh, that markets are just for the bad and capitalism is something we should get rid of and economic growth is, is bad for sustainability and so on. And what I bring into this course, and I think also where we have really interesting discussion is that I see economics and markets as the solutions to, mm. to many of these things, as market is such a strong institution that we have to, to distribute our scarce resources. And if we can just understand how the market works and how we can actually design the market to work better and in line with a more sustainable and, and living environment, um, a sustainable environment around us, I think we have a great tool in front of us. Mm. Yeah, that's a beautiful perspective. And I think it's a very pragmatic perspective because uh, from my personal point of view, I went into studying economics because I also thought that, okay, if I want to make impact for sustainability, this is where a lot of power lies. This is where our toolkit lies in terms of changing things and being in the rooms where it matters. And I'm curious, so what is one thing that you think like, if people are listening to this as maybe coming from a bit more idealist background, like, and they would come to do a course like the one I did, what would be some of the first things that you would think this is important for people to know about how we can use economics for sustainable purposes? Well, I think I always start by saying that as long as it's free to emit carbon dioxide, for instance, or destroying forests to produce more meat or soya, soy or whatever. As long as that is free, we will never be able to solve climate change or the distinction of biodiversity because the market is so strong. And we are so many people on this earth. Uh, we have scarce resources and we need some institution to be able to distribute these resources and to steer people's behavior in different ways. Mm. And as I said, as long as the incentives for, for protecting nature, uh, taking care of the emissions that the production might give rise to, we will not be able to solve these issues. Mm. So that will be my, my first entrance point. And in economics, we call this externalities, as you know by now, mm. and we call it a market failure, right? Because in a perfect world, all the costs and benefits in a transfer between a consumer and a producer or when you consume a good will be incorporated in the price at the market. But then we know now that there is so many things that are not incorporated in this, like emissions or pollutions, mm. for instance. And that is what gives rise to these, these problems that we have and these issues. Because imagine if a, a steel... A factory, for instance, when they produce steel, would have to pay for all the emissions that they have. I mean, first of all, they will have a huge incentive to emit as little as possible, right? And invest in technologies that do not emit 
But even if they would emit something, they would pay for the cost that it causes societies. So then we could use that <laughs> into actually have other type of precaution measures, maybe yeah. investing in this capturing carbon technologies that are out there um, mm. and these kind of things. So that is one entrance point, I think, that is important. Yeah. And then from that, we come into all these tools that are there, all these policies that we have to actually make a correction then, because since these values are not incorporated into the market automatically, we can then create taxes or tradable emission permits. We can have regulations and these kind of things that mm. then help to design a market that actually takes these costs and benefits into account. Mm. Yeah, that was what I wanted to, to lead into also with this entrance point of then if I play devil's advocate, like why isn't just this, these externalities priced in directly? Like, because I know that as soon as you go into this, it becomes a lot of complexities in how to steer and govern a society and, a, and an economy, especially like with our global world today. But can you do like the brief version of why is this not just so simple to implement? So I think the main reason why it's not so uh, so easy to... I mean, there are different layers here, yeah. right? I mean, first of all, even if there is many that might agree that, I mean, of course, it should not be free to emit carbon so that we have... Or pollutions in general, so that we have these type of, of problems with health issues and environmental issues and so on. Even if we can have many people agreeing on that, I mean, it's often quite politically difficult to, to implement these because people might, on a more ideological point, maybe think it is correct, but then when it comes to the individual cost that it costs you, because you also understand that many people have to use their cars to come to work. Mm. Uh, and if you suddenly increase the price of fuel to do that, it will have a direct impact on your individual well-being, right? And that is why I think it's both politically difficult to, to implement this because individuals might be thinking that the environment is important, but as soon as it becomes an individual cost to you, then it's harder, right? Yeah. And we have definitely so the seen those support... examples in, in different parts yes. of the world, like yeah. farmers in, in France, for example, and how the conversation in Sweden is going about the rural areas versus the urban areas and, and how, how as soon as you implement something that becomes overarching all, that it affects mm. different groups of people very differently. Yeah, exactly. And then we, I mean, go into this other topic about fairness. Mm. So people have a very strong preference for fairness issues. Uh, and that is what you are pointing at now. I mean, that's why we see around the world, I mean, currently there is a big uh, demonstration from, from farmers in, in Germany uh, for the increase in fuel prices. Uh, we have seen this in, in Paris with the Yellow West movement or, or around France, but specifically in Paris, we saw a lot of that. Uh, and here, I think, thinking smartly about how we design these policies becomes so crucial. We need to understand these fundamental issues about fairness, that people care about this. I mean, most of the time, why people are out on the street demonstrating where we increase the fuel prices is because they feel it's not fair that they are not fairly treated. Why should I pay this price and why others are not paying it? We hear the same discussions on 
the climate negotiations, nations bringing this up, the fairness issue when they have discussions also. Why should we pay if they are not, right? We can hear U.S. with that argument quite a lot, mm. but also other, other countries, right? So that is, that is very important. And that is also why I think we have to broaden our view of policy instruments and also thinking very smartly on how we implement these type of instruments. So when it comes to increasing prices, for instance, you can do this stepwise so that you don't bring a high price immediately, but you take it slowly step by step, like we have done with the carbon tax that we have in Sweden. It was brought in on a quite low level, part of a bigger tax reform. So it was packaged, not to have so much focus on that, but packaging it, have a package of redesigned the tax system in Sweden. They started at a low, at a low level, as I said, and then increased it stepwise. Currently, we have one of the highest carbon prices in the world in Sweden, right? But I think if you walk around and ask people, people, most people will not even know that we have it. Yeah. And if they would know, they would probably not know that we have one of the highest in the world. Still, I mean, it's not enough, right? I mean, economists have shown that if we really want to, to do something about climate change, we have to have even higher prices than what we have in Sweden today. So even if it's a high price, it might not be enough. Another part is... Before we go into the next part, can I just, there's <laughs> one perspective that, that like tickles my brain a bit because as Sweden have a high price for carbon relatively, and sometimes you hear the debate going in a global level, like we can't have uh, these high carbon taxes because this will affect our international trading and those types of things. How does this work in regards like, uh, so if I buy one good in, in Sweden that is carbon taxed versus in another country, where it isn't, how does these types of things affect international trade? Maybe asking a big question here, but I'm, I'm curious to get that one out of you as well. So it's a big question, but I mean, of course, it has effects, right? Uh, and we can see that uh, when it comes to steel, for instance. So there we have seen that the, the import of steel from, from China and other parts of the world have increased as we have increased the pricing uh, of steel in, in Europe in general mm. due to the emission trading uh, scheme that we have in Europe. And this is also why Europe now is implementing a quite strict regulation on these uh, carbon border, border emission equalizer, <laughs> so to say, to try to balance that part. Yeah, uh, so that you have to pay when you import uh, from making outside sure of the that EU. They, Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that that's a way to 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 come come around that again, bringing up the fairness issue, right? Mm. <laughs> that firms here within Europe feels that they are unfairly treated, uh, that the market is not that they are com not competing in a free market anymore. That we are putting restrictions into their uh, possibilities to compete equally with China and India and, and other places, right? Um, so this is uh, this is definitely a topic, um, and that's also why, when it comes to pricing on carbon specifically, it's often raised that we need a, a global price yeah. on carbon, and that we need to to price carbon everywhere. And and what the EU is doing now, very bravely, I think, is is trying to to move into that direction, yeah. because the problem with the global market is that as long as we have countries. Um, who decides over their own policies, 
it's very hard to implement global policies because who will oversee these type of policies? Mm. Yeah. So what they have designed now in Europe, I think it's it's going to be really interesting to to follow this and see how it goes. Uh, but it's def- I I I believe it's going to have an effect. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting to follow. Like me working as a sustainability consultant, I see quite rapid changes in the the corporate world where which is coming from a regulation place now being driven at least from that uh, perspective if you take the the big market where a lot of talk right now is about CSRD which as you mentioned before like it's being stepped in gradually so it's going to affect large corporations first and that will of course then trickle down to the smaller ones which is it's not like a tax or anything like that but it's definitely a directive that becomes something that uh, they need to follow and uh, adhere to which changes the dynamics of how companies will also do business and what information they will require and those types of things so when you have gotten into these perspectives of knowing what goes on behind the scenes when you try to design these things to create change it's quite interesting to see them also from the practitioner side of what is happening actually outside in the corporate world as well. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think also what you bring up, it's, it's also a perspective of how important it is to look at this on a societal as a whole sometimes. I mean, these kind of changes bring enormous opportunities on the labor market. I mean, this will create a lot of jobs, right? Yeah. <laughs> these kind of policies, which is, I mean, specifically interesting for those of us that are interested in, in sustainability issues and have that kind of background. I think the other, the other part here is also to see how this might uh, push uh, more sustainable technologies into uh, more low middle income countries as well. Yeah. Because for us to still be able to, to import steel and other products for, from other countries, we probably need to open up more export of cleaner technologies into these companies as well and then there has been i mean and it's still ongoing discussion about okay so all these fees that the importers have to pay for the carbon emissions that are done on the goods that they are importing what are we going to use these incomes from yeah for and and one suggestion is actually that it should be used for incentivizing investments in cleaner technology in these low and middle income countries mm. and i think so it's so many interesting things that also follows with this if we design it in a way so that we can actually trigger more sustainable investment mm. in other parts of the world as well yes definitely an impact on 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 trade but also a great opportunity of of trade of other types of products yeah and there you got into something that uh, we mentioned in the beginning, how uh, these types of things can create another type of incentives which drives investments, uses the market as a tool for creating the change. As example, investing in more cleaner technology in maybe geographies that maybe wouldn't drive those investments themselves if it wasn't for the regulations in EU, for example. But I think when we talk about regulations and big structural things uh, that affects the whole of society i think it might be hard for people to individually relate to well how does this affect me how does this affect um, 
my work, uh, my everyday life. And I think uh, that's where I think there's a really interesting intersection point where you in the course talked a lot about the nudges and the behavioral economics. So can we go into that topic a bit? And I think maybe the first thing we should do is just like, if you could give us your description of what is a nudging and a nudge. The definition of a nudge was posed by Taylor and, and Sunstein in the beginning of 2000. And the idea with, with this is that when, when people go in and take decisions, and people take thousands of decisions every day, we know now from behavioral science that we take mental shortcuts to do so, to help us take these decisions. And using all this information, we can actually create the environment where people take these choices to help them make better choices, not only for themselves, but also for society. Mm. So the definition of a nudge is that we are able to change the choice architecture in a way that is beneficial for the individual itself and often for society as well, right? Mm. So just to give you some concrete examples, I think many of us have set the alarm clock early in the morning because the evening before we decide that we will go up and, and go to the gym before we go to school or work or whatever we we're going to do that day. And when the alarm clock goes on, we're like, no way, I'm, I'm going to sleep another hour, right? Uh, and in research, we call this the intention to action gap. So we have good intentions, right? The good intention to go to the gym, to, to keep ourselves healthy, or the good intention to take the bike to work instead of taking the car or stop smoking because we know that's bad for our health and, and not very good for the, for the environment as a whole, so the whole production of, of tobacco and cigarettes yeah. and, and so on, right? But then when it comes to do the actual action of that good intention, it's not always that the action plays out. Mm. Uh, and that, I think, is, it's really interesting that people, even if they have the correct information, they have access to the necessary technology, they state the right intention. If you ask them, yes, I'm going to start uh, biking to work. I mean, most of my colleagues yeah. have, have said something like that in the lunchroom, right? <laughs> still, I see many of them still taking the car. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even if we have all this, we still observe that, that people are not uh, taking action. Mm. Yeah, I think this is a very interesting topic and the the array of what could be called a nudge is so vast, like from uh, big things affecting millions of people to nudging yourself, as you said, with maybe trying to create a new habit for yourself personally and using, and you mentioned there, like we take mental shortcuts and I definitely feel this as well. That I think we can describe it as when you have the rational mind that can actually look at different perspectives, figure out the decision in, with different variables. And we have the uh, direct tailors, something calls them system one and two, or maybe it's Daniel Kahneman who calls it that. It's Kahneman actually, yeah, yeah. Who, who wrote this book. I mean, also again, based on, on many, many years and decades of behavioral science. He, he wrote this more popular science book where he systemize this knowledge into the system one and system two thinking mm. whereas system one is like this fast automatic thinking as you said often based on stereotypes and previous experiences and so on and then we have the system two thinking which is this more slowly 
calculating thinking. In economics, we call it maybe more rational thinking. Mm. And here is where we yeah <laughs> we end up with with often system one helping us right because if we would work with system two all the time, I mean we will not even get out of our apartments in the morning right because we will think about every every small little choices and we cannot I mean we cannot function as humans like that so we need both of these systems yeah but we can also work with the system one thinking a little bit more using nudges for sure. And I just thought of a funny memory that speaking of nudging, I remember actually when we started this podcast in 2020, I had a friend request that we do an episode of about nudging for sustainability back then. And I didn't know what it was until much later, actually. But so now here we are. So that's a closed loop now. But so what are some of your favorite nudges for sustainability specifically so that we can concretize this a little bit more? So I have I have a couple of of favorite nudges, <laughs> yeah, and and many of them are actually very very famous one. But one of the first one that I actually heard about. So the first time that I heard about the nudge was in, at a seminar that I was invited to in Stockholm. I don't remember the year, but it was many years ago, and it was based on this change that was had had been done in in hotel chains. Uh, I think they started in in Norway actually, but then it. It trickled down to, to be the whole Scandinavia. So one of the, the famous hotel chains in, in Scandinavia um, was asked by some researchers, actually, to see if they could reduce the food waste from their breakfast uh, buffets by just changing the size of the plate. Uh, so going from, from the normal bigger sizes of uh, 24 centimeters to going down to, to 21 centimeters. And the researchers that followed that project could actually see that they reduced food food waste by almost 20%. Mm. So that's a huge effect, right? And imagine, I mean, now, if you go to to a breakfast buffet, next time, try to see the size of the the plates, and you will see that most of the hotels that I've been to, at least, in Scandinavia, have the smaller plates. And... Yeah, so that is that is one nudge that I think is really interesting. We call it the change in the in the physical environment. So there are of course many other examples, but these kind of like very simple, small changes, yeah. which is beneficial not only for for the society as a whole, right? That we are reducing the food waste, but it's also beneficial for for the hotels, for the firms, right? They are also saving costs for not having to throw away food. Yep. They have to order less food, right? So that is a safe cost for them and still have clients and guests that are happy and have their breakfast. It's also good for us as individuals because smaller size of the plate has also in other studies shown that we eat less, right? So it might also be uh, healthy for us. Yeah, these are interesting. <laughs> and just before we maybe hear some other examples, I'm uh, when I first heard about nudging, like quite soon my mind went to like, isn't this very close to manipulation? And I think that's a common way to go. But I think what you mentioned here before is a key ingredient, the intention to action gap, where uh, if the people who you are affecting with the nudge already have the intention to do uh, a specific type of decision or a habit, and you just are creating the most beneficial environment to be able to execute that behavior, then you're serving yourself and serving the the target group as well. Whereas I think we can 
in today's society, also, if we are aware, see lots of nudges which are maybe closer to manipulation. The, the easiest example for me right now would probably be like how shelves are stocked in, in supermarkets, for example, where it's an incentive for the supermarket to place the highest net value products on the shelves closest to eye level, where we give them most attention and salience. And that then becomes easier for us to take those types of products, regardless if those are what we had the intention to buy or not. Because So that, I think, is maybe a, a distinction between when you do it to close the intention to action gap or when you use nudging in a little bit more, I guess, selfish or not the most beneficial to society way. Would you like to comment on that or do you have more examples? Yes, then I would like to elaborate a little bit more on that. Yes. Nice. <laughs> because I think we have to distinguish between what is a nudge and what is marketing, right? Mm. Uh, so, I mean, many of the, of the designs that we use in, in nudging is based on a lot of research that is also used in marketing. So what you're been mentioning now, I mean, this that we know that people will pick what are in their eyesight's height and uh, they will pick things that are close to the counter, for instance. This is knowledge that is used in marketing a lot. So, and it's not defined as much. <laughs> okay, right. so yeah. so just by, by seeing that they are placing these type of, of products that they, the firm itself will, will benefit economically from, it's not making it a nudge, okay? So to be able to be a nudge, it has to have this individual and societal element to it, first of all, I would say. Yeah, I think Taylor and Sunstein will, will, would agree on my, <laughs> with me on that one. I also would like to elaborate a little bit more on the definition of a nudge. Uh, they, it's important that it's not mandatory, right? Mm. So going back to the example that I just gave with the, with the size of the plates, I mean, with that change, you could still eat as much as you want, right? I have not taken away any choices from you. Uh, it, it's an, yeah, a nudge should not be mandatory and it should be easy and cheap to avoid. Okay, so let me give you an, another another example that I had on that is also one of my favorite, maybe because it was colleagues of mine from Gothenburg that that did this experiment. Mm. So they went down to the cafeteria at the University of Gothenburg at the School of Economics and Business, and there, as in many lunch restaurants, you have uh, some different alternatives to choose from for your lunch, and most of the time we see the meat option first. And then maybe you have a fish option. And then maybe maybe you have a salad option. And then you might have a vegetarian option. But often you have to ask for that. You're, it's often just said, we also have a vegetarian option. But what it is, it's often not stated, right? Mm -hmm. So what they did is that they went in and made a small change where they switched. So instead of having meat option first, they put the vegetarian option and specified it. Not just saying there is a vegetarian option, but really specified what it was. And then in the end of the menu, they put, we also have a meat option. And that, I mean, now we are in a student environment, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that they made this experiment. But with a normal meat option first menu, around 50% of the students going to the cafeteria choose the meat option. When instead they put the vegetarian option first, only 20% choose the meat option. 
And this type of experiments have been done in many other types of, of restaurants showing quite similar, similar results. Yeah. Again, very easy to, to avoid, right? I mean, you can st- if you want meat, you can still go for meat. Meat is still there. We haven't taken away anything, but we have changed, made a small change in the choice architecture, and it has a huge effect and also a long-term effect because I think that's another th- critique against nudges is that, okay, you have an immediate effect, but, but how long-term is it? Yeah. And they actually went back and, and saw that this actually had a quite long-term effect as well. Uh, continue having a lower uh, a yeah. lower consumption of meat. Yeah, I I like nudging because it's uh, the examples you give now are like so simple. And if you think of human as rational beings, they shouldn't really affect us at all. But then you see the results as statistically. The first one you mentioned that was around twenty percent, and that the differences in how people choose is significant. And I've actually tried the mm-hmm. this later nudge that you mentioned here on my swim run race after I had your course. So I just set the um, vegetarian uh, option as the standard option as food when you finish the race. And uh, you could also like with one button of a click um, choose to have a meat option as well, which we then sourced locally. But, um, and I've done this now, I think it's for three years. The first year I saw very little difference actually. But then the second year, I also started to add some a little bit more text of explanation why we're doing it this way. So then you also have the information nudge on top of it. And then I have also like continued to communicate why we do things a lot. And gradually over these three years, I've seen quite, it's not drastic, but it's absolutely significant. So from being maybe probably 90% in year one that ate meat. I think it's now kind of 50-50, which is over three years time, quite a big difference. And I think for me, just hearing about how simple it can be to implement these nudges really gave me some power and like feeling of, okay, I can be part of actually implementing these types of nudges. And I think that is something that I want to bring to the table with this podcast as well, that allow people to think where are they in positions where just small changes like this, when you know about what has been done in other places that you can implement in your workplace or wherever you are to yeah. affect people in a positive way? I hope exactly. so. At least. And that's why I think it's such a good complement to our other type of policies, right? Because, I mean, implementing an emission trading scheme or, or a tax, I mean, first of all, there is a huge investment that you have to make to, to implement these policies. And you have to have the political will, and you have to have the public support, and you have to have the infrastructure, you have to have trust in institutions to be able to, to actually have an effect on, on a tax system, for instance, because, I mean, there is a lot of tax and regulations implemented in countries where trust in institutions are very low, mm. and then they actually don't work, right? People don't pay tax and then you don't have institutions that are following up. In the, in, it's the same with regulation when it comes to, to deforestations, for instance, that if you don't have the, the right institutions and the political will to follow up, you can have as many laws as you want to protect forests. But if no one is following up, you will still have a high level of deforestation. But maybe I can bring in 
one of my actual top favorite nudges. <laughs> sure. That I know that they're also bringing up in, there is actually uh, uh, a really good uh, episode on nudges if you want to hear from, yes, it's Richard Thaler they interview in, in that who is like the father of, of nudges in, in Freakonomics as well. Mm. Uh, and he also bringing up some, some interesting examples. And he brought my attention to, to a nudge that I was not aware of before, but I went and read the paper about this and I really like this nudge as well. <laughs> And it's a, it's a nudge that was implemented in Saudi Arabia. So in Saudi Arabia, women are not allowed to work when they are married if they don't have a certificate from their husband. Okay, mm. so to be able to work in Saudi Arabia as a woman, married woman, you need a certificate from your husband. So what they did was that they went in and asked uh, young married men privately if they would support their wife working. And most of them, very high share of them said, yes, I would. But then they also asked, do you think that others would also support their wives? And they said that they didn't thought that. Mm. So they had a myth, like they themselves, they would give the permission, but they thought that others would not do it. So they mistakenly believed that this was not a widely spread view. They thought that I'm I'm probably the only one that, that carried this view. So what they did in this experiment is that they used, based on that information, they created an information nudge. So they went out with a lot of, of information trying to correct this misconception. And this led to actually a lot of more men uh, giving a certificate for their wives to work and has also increased their female participation in the labor force in Saudi Arabia quite dramatically. Mm. And I think that's also, I mean, as you say, it's so in a sense, so simple, right? I mean, with just simple information regarding that there is a lot of young men in Saudi Arabia that will definitely allow their wives to work. And just spreading that information had a huge impact on women's participation in the labor force in in Saudi Arabia. This is a quite recent study from from 2020. So let's see if this is also going to have long-term effects. But Mm. I think it's also so interesting to see how we, with so simple and cheap measures, can have huge impacts that will have significant impact on our society. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you bring us there into the another topic that I want to have in in this podcast while having you on, which is of um, women's participation in well. In, in this regard, ownership. Uh, so I know that you have done research with uh, a Swedish think tank called Ownershift. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that entails, the work of Ownershift? Yes, so Ownershift quite recently became a foundation uh, where we work in, in teams of researchers, lawyers, communicators, PR experts, graphic designers. Uh, and what we have done so far is to use uh, available data, available research, published uh, research to drive change in a way that we want to increase women's women's ownership. And the goal is to reach a society where opportunities to own capital are equal for men and women. And for those of you who don't know, today men own more than twice as much as women in Sweden. And I think that, to me, that was quite shocking news 
because the information that most of us have is that we live in a quite uh, equal society, gender equal society in Sweden. And we do in many perspectives, we do, but in others we don't. Uh, and when it comes to ownership, we definitely don't. Uh, and the reason why we at ownership are so passionate about this question is that the ultimate power is actually among those that owns. And then connecting this to my own research, which is more or has for, for, for a decade now <laughs> been more focused on environmental issues. There is also a really nice connection I realized when I did some, some research two years ago on the management of natural resources. So not, my, not only my studies, but other studies have shown that when we bring women on board on decision-making, women often have a broader spectrum of values that they bring to the table when they take decisions, especially in, in, in firms or in management of, of natural resources, we see a similar pattern. And it's not that women do not care about profits. They do, okay? But in uh, like joined with that, they also care about social values and environmental values. And that also means that they take other types of decisions. So what we did in, in the research that I was involved in was that we looked at community-based forest management in Ethiopia, mm -hmm. where communities are actually given their responsibility from the government. So all forest or land in, in Ethiopia is owned by the government. But communities can be given the right to manage the forest. Uh, when they do, they set up a committee that takes the decision about management plans and so on. And most of these committees are only men. Uh, but we look into what happens in these communities where you actually have women on board in the decision-making committees. Uh, and what we find out is actually that the environmental outcomes, meaning the the environmental status of the forest, and also the household incomes uh, increases. So you get both a beneficial outcome from the environment, but also an economic uh, benefit out of bringing more women into taking decisions about the natural, uh, forest man uh, natural uh, resource management. And that, I think, bridges so nicely to why from a sustainability aspect, ownership, is so important because the ultimate power lies with those who own, right? And if we look into both the fossil fuel sector, but also I would say what is, what is happening now with the, with the green tech sector that is taking speed and having more and more, more investment, we cannot forget to also look into the ownership uh, of these and new companies coming in, like how does that look like and, and how can we form a society where we might not in the end have exactly 50-50 ownership of everything, right? But at least we should have equal opportunities mm. to this. And I think one really good point that you make here is like, why does it matter to have more ownership in women's hands? And it's if you look at these outcomes that has been seen in other diversity studies and gender equalities as well that for example that board of directors economically perform better when there is a diversity because then you get perspectives <clears throat> into the mix that you otherwise wouldn't have and i think i think we if we just bunch 
our group as men together stand so much to benefit from from this as well to have more balance in wherever we go about to have more of the perspectives of women into if we just use business as the example because we gain more perspectives and i think many people just agree with these things on a values-based level but i think some people might benefit from just hearing the outcome-based results as well like to see that it can prove against their skepticism in a way as well yeah yeah i think there is also if you have not listened to it yet i would really recommend you to listen to the the summer speech <laughs> of uh, Catherine Marshall, where she is also talking about how why gender equality is so important for men, mm. right? Uh, because I mean, these norms that are around these gender roles that we have in society is actually very damaging uh, for men, uh, and we also see that when it comes to health issue, mental health issue, we see more and more uh, men in. In your age, I would say, I mean, between 25 and 40, that is really not feeling very well uh, psychologically due to this pressure of, of being in this male norm mm. that many men doesn't feel that they, they fit into, right? And, and I, I mean, that is one thing that we, because I mean, when we look at to also the question of why do women own just half of what men owns in Sweden. We, we look into, we, we have found like three main uh, reasons for that. Uh, and the first reason is that, that men are uh, the norm when it comes to the owner. And the second part is this issue, we call it many, many small streams. Uh, this issue that since men uh, earn more, <laughs> Uh, than women, and since women still in Sweden are taking a large responsibility over uh, children and taking out much more parental leave and so on, uh, throughout the years in life, that means that they get less income, meaning that they have less capital to invest. Um, and then the last topic that we, or category of, of mechanism to explain why, why men own so much more than women is this what we call the catch-22, which in the discussion, especially connected to business, I would say, and entrepreneurship, we also often talk about that women need to be more confident and they need to change their behavior. But research have actually found that once women are actually doing that, they are perceived very different than men. So, so it is this like catch-22. And it's so important to also say that it's, it's not an individual that needs to change, but it is a system that needs to change to give equal opportunity to ownership. Mm. Yeah, this is very interesting. You mentioned there that one outcome that you would like to see is equal opportunity for ownership for men and women. What is ownership's focus going forward? Is it to, to bring knowledge or what is your focus on trying to take steps towards this? So I would say that we have three focuses at the moment. The first one is to continue what we have started and that is to spread knowledge. Uh, we still, I mean, we are out uh, uh, in different type of forum to have different types of, of discussions and presentations and educating people about just the fact that currently in Sweden, women only own half of what men, what men do. So that is one part. The other part is to, to bring in more knowledge. So 
pointing out where we have gap in, in data availability, where we have gap in, in, in research knowledge, where we need more research, and also to, to try to find more funding to actually do research where we see the gaps and the needs. And then the third part is to conquer the world, <laughs> meaning that we have looked at, at Sweden now and we want ownership to go international and bring these topics to the table all over the world. So hopefully uh, in the future, you will see more reports from us with perspectives from outside Sweden as well. How does ownership look like in, in Europe or who owns the world? <laughs> mm. uh, but as we already have pointed out in, in the second part that we concentrated on, the main reason why we know so little about this is data availability. Mm. Uh, in most countries, if there is any wealth uh, data collected, it's often collected on household level. So then we don't have the gender dimension in that data. Um, yeah. So that makes it very, very complicated to look at these issues. Who are actually owning what? Yeah, this is very interesting work. And I hope that we can illuminate this field a lot more. And I think it's very important that the type of work you do to, to bring this to the table and to the forefront of... Because this is just as the information nudge, maybe something that many people just inherently don't know about and therefore think that things are normal but and that they are equal but exactly this shows that yeah. we still have a lot of work to do yeah. for the benefit of the whole society yeah no and also one thing that i think i mean pointing a little bit maybe towards the listeners that i guess are interested in in sustainability issues in general and that is that we also need to encourage each other to be brave right because i mean changing these norms or or doing like you have done in, in the example that you said to actually in our small community. So we are start to be able to change things and say, no, I'm going to put the vegetarian option first and not the meat option. I mean, you have to be a bit brave to do that because you will meet resistance. You will meet people who say, no, you should not decide over what I eat. I want to eat meat. And then we have to be brave to both take this decision, but also to explain why and also say, but the meat option is still here. Right? That's what I like with the nuts. It's like, mm. okay, I'm not going to take it away from you. I'm just going to make it a little bit easier for you to also be brave enough to take another decision this time. Yep. <laughs> for sure. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure talking to you about these topics and uh, to get to delve into some um, flashbacks of uh, studying again. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah. But before I Good. let you go, I want to ask our signature question as well of, what would you like to encourage to listeners throughout this decade of action? So to me, I think I would like to, my first point is to where I started, support pricing, <laughs> support carbon pricing or support pricing of, of these type of externalities that we have that do not have a price. That is the first thing I would say. And the other thing, uh, pointing more towards what I ended my uh, or our conversation with here is yeah to work more on inclusive ownership for our resources that mm. we have on this planet. So not only a focus on gender, but inclusive in general, because we need that. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And if uh, listeners are curious to find out more about uh, your work or about ownership, uh, where can they go to learn more? So they can go to our webpage. Uh, it's 
yes, the ownershift.se. There they can read more about that work. And, and we are happy also if you want to know more, please just reach out to us. And as I said, we are working a lot on the first point to spread knowledge and have conversations in different forums and so on. So mm. happy to, to continue that. And then you can come and study at Jibs and, and take my course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then we discuss more. <laughs> For sure. And I think, uh, so ownership right now is uh, currently only Swedish, right? At the moment, yes. So then maybe an extra encouragement for international listeners to, if they feel called, that uh, to start conversations and percolate this uh, mission in other geographies. Absolutely. And as I said, that's, that's our third mission that we're working on right now. So definitely we're very open to that. Cool. Thank you so much, Anna, for sharing your knowledge here on uh, The Decade. And uh, I wish you a great rest of the day. Same to you. And thank you for inviting me. This has been a pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Decade Podcast. I would like to ask you to reflect on anything in this episode that impacted you or left an impression that you could take with you in this decade of action. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend or in your network on social media. And as always, feel free to reach out with feedback questions or topics you would like us to cover you can reach us through our social media or on the decade podcast at gmail.com and we hope to see you more further down the road throughout this decade thank you until next time